Our scripture this this morning is Colossians 3, 17 through 21. It can be found on page 984 in the Pew Bible. Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad that you're here this morning. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pray to get started, so I invite everybody here to just join me uh, as I pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a good father to your children. Thank you that you love us and care for us and discipline us. Thank you that you keep us. I ask this morning, um, Spirit of God, that you would Apply this word to our hearts. Would you um, encourage and convict and uphold and shape and transform, uh, especially this morning, the, the men in the room, the husbands and fathers, or the future husbands and future fathers, or the spiritual fathers in the room. Spirit of God, would you be with us? Would you move? Would you manifest your presence through uh, comfort and encouragement, through establishing us, strengthening us in the faith, uh, bolstering our hope? And would you convict us and uh, just do heart surgery on us this morning? Increase our faith and help us all live underneath the submission, uh, our submission to the Lord Jesus Christ in this place, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Out of, out of the section of text that we've read, this is the third week in a row that we, we bundled all of those uh, verses together. But out of that section of text, I want to talk mainly to men today. We talked to wives two weeks ago. We talked to kids and parents in general last week. And, and now we'll talk directly to men, uh, specifically husbands and fathers we see in this text. And to begin, to begin with, I want to say, ju- just in case there's any confusion out there, this is a church that loves and champions the role of fathers. This is a church that loves and champions the unique role of men in the church and the unique role of men in society. We love men. We don't demean men or women from the pulpit. We don't complain about parenting from the pulpit. We don't complain or murmur about men or the families that God has blessed us with. We love families and we aim to love this spiritual family as well. And today's message highlights a fundamental role that men in particular play in God's creation. 
The unique contribution of men to both the family and society can be seen in statistics that correlate with the absence of men and fathers in the home. Listen to this quote. Women have lower rates than men for virtually every single crime category except prostitution. This is true in all countries for which data are available. It is true for all racial and ethnic groups and for every historical period. In the United States, women constitute less than 20% of arrests for most crime categories. Because men were created to initiate and men were created to protect, and men were created to guard, and men were created to shoulder a certain burden of responsibility in a different capacity than women, men have a unique capacity for blessing and to empower, and they have a unique capacity for inflicting harm and destruction. Study after study has shown time and time again the truth about this basic and fundamental fact regarding how God designed human beings to function. The presence of fathers or the absence of fathers has a disproportionate effect on women and children and society, for good or for ill. Homes without fathers correlate with higher rates of depression, higher rates of anxiety, higher rates of mental illness, higher rates of obesity in children, higher, higher likelihood of drug and alcohol abuse, and higher likelihood of spending time in prison. And those are just a handful of the myriad of statistics. Dads, dads, men in the room, we love you. We love you. We love you. And what you do and what you don't do has more impact on the healthy future of this church than almost anything else in the natural. I don't know what message you grew up hearing, and I don't know if you knew that or not, but now, now we all do. Now we, we know. So I'm going to take these two verses in turn, but the steps that we're going to walk are arranged this way. The first thing I'm going to talk about is, or, or, or exhort everybody, and specifically the men in the room, is to devote yourself to follow Jesus with purpose and passion. Remember, the first thing about this text I want us to understand is that it is a, Lord, it is a lordship text, and nothing instructed here functions how it's supposed to unless it functions out of our complete submission underneath Jesus Christ. Trying to apply these texts on a horizontal understanding or a horizontal level will uh, warp them and twist them. The only way to understand and apply them is in their direct arrangement underneath Christ's lordship for every single relationship in our lives. The second exhortation is for men to demonstrate your love for Christ by how you love your wives. If you're submitted to the lordship of Christ, it will cascade into how you relate to your bride. Number three is, men in the room, demonstrate your love for Christ in how you father your children. If you're submitted to the lordship of Christ, it will cascade into how you relate to your kids. 
So the first thing I want to do is I want to talk about devoting yourself to follow Jesus with passion and purpose. And essentially what I'm doing is before I get into the specific exhortation regarding the relationship that men have with their wives and the relationship that men have with their children, I want to talk about the relationship that men have with Jesus, with the living God, with how they submit their heart and soul and mind and devote all the things in their lives and all their resources towards serving and loving and living um, and living in submission to him. So brothers in the room, this is foundational. Older men, younger men, living a life that's saturated with devotion to Jesus is the only way to obey the instructions that are given in God's word. I don't, know what, I don't know what draws your attention. I don't know what kind of draws out of your heart, your devotion. I don't know what moves you as a man, what compels you to action and obedience. But God, the God of the universe, made you to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. Christianity is um, unusually filled with women and children. Statistically, it can't be denied that women in the church outnumber men two and three to one in Western Christian denominations. That's not the case in Judaism, so it's not a religious thing. It's not the case in Judaism, it's not the case in Eastern Orthodoxy, and it's not the case in Islam. But in Western Christianity, men are outnumbered two and three to one. So I want to say that in this place, we want to explicitly resist that. We want to explicitly fight against that here. And we want to say things like what it means to be a man in this church is to be full of love and devotion and obedience to God. To love worship, to love prayer, to love caring for our families. That's manly. That's manly. So before we encounter the specific instructions for husbands here, I want to give an overarching exhortation to all the men in the room to run hard after Jesus. That's the only way this will work. That's the only way. And I'm going to do that through a text in the Gospel of John first. In the Gospel of John chapter 6, Jesus Jesus is going back and forth with the crowds around him. And he's unpacking, he's unpacking a deeper meaning about the story of the manna that Yahweh gave to the Israelites in the wilderness. He's talking about bread from heaven that just showed up on the ground every single morning. And Jesus is explaining that he himself, himself is the true bread, that the true bread of life. Okay, He's saying things to these people like, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if you eat this living bread, you'll live forever. So the picture that he's painting for these people around him is manna kept Israel alive in the desert. But if you eat Jesus, if you eat living bread, you'll live forever, forever. And the crowd is weirded out by this. Okay. They, they think it's strange that he's saying that they, they need to eat him. They grumble and they say, what's this guy talking about? Surely it's not as plain as it sounds. Is he really saying that we have to eat him? That's gross, Jesus. And Jesus knows that they're confused. Okay, And he doesn't back off at all. He actually leans in and he pushes on them and he says, yeah, 
That is what I said. In fact, let me make it plain. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the crowd is puzzled, to say the least. Jesus' own disciples in this moment are perplexed. And Jesus has everybody in the room scratching their heads. And after this exchange, the text says that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This crowd of fair-weather disciples wanted Jesus because they thought that he was going to deliver. They didn't want him. They wanted to fill their pockets and fill their pantries and fill their bellies with the miracles that he was doing. And then Jesus drops a bomb and says, you have to live and be connected to me. You have to trust me all the way to the bottom. You have to look to me for life at all. And everybody leaves because that's too hard. And in this tragic moment, Jesus looks at his 12, his guys, and he says, do you want to leave And Simon Peter speaks up. And this is actually a moment uh, in Simon Peter's life that was a good moment. He speaks up and he says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So men in the room, the word of Christ to you this morning is if you don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you. Your purpose without Christ is bankrupt and your passions without Christ are vain. Every week in this room, we read the Bible and we try to listen and we ask the Holy Spirit to move us and change us. And every week we we read the Bible out loud and we sing songs and we ask the Holy Spirit to transform us in the deepest places in our hearts. And every week we read God's word and we ask God to cut us open with that same word. And then we leave here and we go out and and, uh, continue with our week. But unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And week after week, we're going to say hard things from the Bible because that's how the Bible works. That's what Jesus did. He walked around saying hard things and some people smelled that as the, as, the, as, the, as the aroma of life and some people smelled it as the stench of death and they left. And this morning's, like make no mistake, this morning is a tall order for the men in this room. And the truth is, is that I wouldn't dare water it down or make it easy or simple or tell you that it's not going to cost you your life. So let me help you and remind you this morning that you can't do it by yourself. This text is not about form. It isn't about tips or tricks or techniques. The challenge held up in front of our faces this morning is about our very way of being. What does it feel like for your wife to be around you? What does it feel like for your kids to be around you? Are your children on edge all the time? Do your children walk on eggshells around dad? Does your wife walk on eggshells around her husband? And what, what does a life like that 
do to somebody's heart, do to somebody's soul? What does it teach them about God? Are you generative to your family? And I mean by that, do you bring leadership and life and love home with you? Or, or do you catalyze joy for your family? Or are you just the guy in charge? Another challenge this morning is to ask, are you merely strategizing appeasement in your home and scheming for the shortest path back to the couch to put your feet up and watch the game? Life hacks on YouTube can't put the kind of life in you that you need to husband this way and to father this way. Can't put the life into you to give it away to your wife and kids. And this isn't just for husbands and fathers, men in the room. The only way that you can live a life that counts for the kingdom is if you look at Jesus and you say with Peter, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Devote yourself to Christ with passion and purpose, with your whole heart. Devote yourself to Christ with everything you've got. That's the only way that you can hope to obey these words this morning. A man's purpose begins with surrendering everything he has to the Lordship of Christ. Everything. Surrendering your money and surrendering your time, surrendering your gifts, your leisure, your internal constitution, and your personality proclivities. Lay them all on the altar. Christ demands nothing less. If you're here, if you find yourself in this place and you're here for the stuff that you can get from Jesus or the stuff that you can get from being a part of a nice church, if that's what you're after, then when a word like today's word comes, it will be a hard saying. It will be too hard, and eventually you'll walk away and give up. But if I can help you remember that the only reason you can do this is because you're not really doing it for them as much as you're doing it out of submission to the king of the universe, then that's a game changer for us. Point number one is, men and women in the room, devote yourself to follow Jesus with purpose and passion. Number two, husbands, demonstrate your love for Christ in how you love your wives. Let me say one quick thing regarding marriage before I get into this instruction to husbands. I just want to remind all of us that the devil hates marriage. The devil hates Christian marriages. They have the potential to raise more Christian families and all the forces of darkness want to see your marriage contaminated and twisted with sin and ruin. They don't sleep. But facing our sin and weakness, husbands, is one of the most important ways that we can make an impact on our entire families for good. For good. Husbands in the room, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Colossians right here doesn't give us tons of detail, but in other places in the New Testament, we are given more color for what this looks like. So I'm going to read from Ephesians 5. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want us to think about what, what does love mean right here in Colossians? What does it mean to love your wife and not be harsh with her? Is love just a feeling or a sentiment or is it merely a flutter? 
And I think Ephesians 5 helps, helps us understand that that is not the case. So I'm going to read that right now. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm telling you that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Heavenly Father, would you remind right now every single husband in the room of the vows that he gave on his wedding day? Would you remind every husband in the room of how he stood in front of God and other witnesses and made a covenant before you? Would you remind every husband in the room of that reality right now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's tons written about some of the dynamics represented here in the scriptures. There's tons written about the technical dynamics of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians and what he says in the letter to the, the, to the Colossians. And scholars have almost sucked all of the life out of these verses in today's fighting over it. In today's fray, the debates about headship and submission are flailing everywhere, and the power and the depth and the richness and the beauty of these verses are reduced to flat argumentation. But our charge, husbands, this morning is to imitate how Christ loves his own bride his own bride. And I want us to take note of the fact that men have the responsibility to contribute to the spiritual beauty of their wives. Jesus died for the church, so there's most definitely a kind of sacrificial leadership required of husbands. But remember, this isn't generic sacrifice. Jesus didn't die so that we could have all of our needs met. Jesus died so that we could die. So that we could die. He died to sanctify us. His death has a beautifying, effectual nature to it. His blood makes us white as snow. His wounds, him being ripped apart, makes us whole. His stripes heal us. His sacrifice isn't so that we, he can be our butler or our executive assistant. And neither should you be those those things for your wife. Loving, loving your wife means at least being willing and committed to endure unbearable discomfort for the sake of her ultimate good. For the sake of her ultimate good. And it's our job to know from the scriptures what's good for her and then bear the heavy responsibility of an and endure the hardship to ensure we've done everything we can to make sure that's happening. 
This will have a beautifying effect on your wife. She'll experience a healthy security and safety under that kind of protective devotion to her ultimate good. A few commentators, as I was preparing for this text, said things like, this means putting your wife's needs, the husband's needs above the needs, the wife's needs above the needs of the husband. And that's fine, but I don't find that application very compelling. Does Jesus put our needs above his commands? Phrasing it around our needs is a kind of modern take on this text, in my opinion. In reality, your wife and my wife needs Jesus. Needs Jesus. She needs the presence of a husband who's obsessed with living a life submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ whose heart devotion to Christ is palpable, palpable. Her needs before your own, yes, sure. Be a kind husband. Make time and space to cultivate a culture in your home that appreciates mom and appreciates your bride and honors her and loves her. And she experiences that uh, appreciation and honor in a million creative ways. But way more than that, get a biblical vision for what it looks like for your wife to flourish. Christ's love for his bride is way more about making us like Jesus than it is about meeting our needs. Husbands, your life should aim to demonstrate Christ's commitment to our sanctification and our spiritual beautification. And we need to ask ourselves how we will plan to do that if we don't know what is spiritually beautiful in the first place. Your wife needs you to cultivate delight in the gospel Love for God's word and satisfaction in God. Now, this text gives a positive and a negative instruction. Love your wife, and then it gives a, a negative instruction. It says, don't be harsh with your wife. And I think that there are Christian men in this room who need to take this instruction to heart. I want to speak to three different categories of harshness as we move forward. The first is the most clear and kind of intuitively obvious. There are men in this room who are mean-spirited and angry and harsh in their attitude and in their actions and in their speech with their wives. And, man, if that's you this morning, hear the invitation to repent, to turn away from that. Receive the invitation to repent and turn away from that sin. Some men in this room know that they've been harsh with their wives or that they were harsh with their wives on the way to church this morning and they need to make it right with them. And they need to make it right and restore fellowship that's been broken because of sin and they need to make that right with their wives before they take communion this morning. The second category is a little different But there are also men in this room who might get themselves off the hook because they have more self-control. Perhaps they have a strong grip on their own volume or the specific words that they use, but they nevertheless have a harsh disposition towards their wives. Now, if you're in this category, you have a kind of exacting or rigid expectations and your wife lives nervous that she'll displease you. 
This kind of harshness is smug and demeaning and crippling. So again, man, if you're in this room and this is you, you know your wife is scared to disappoint you because of how harsh your demeanor is and how you demand a certain standard of behavior. And you also, you also have the opportunity to turn away from that and restore fellowship and repent to your wife this morning, even before you take communion. If you rely on rolling eyes or sharp glances to steer or control your wife's behavior, this text is for you this morning. Love your wife and live with her in an understanding way, not a harsh way, not a cruel way. Because when you're, when you're sharp with your wife, you're telling your kids that it's okay to treat mom like that and it's all right to treat women like that. And you're lying to your kids about Christ's love for his own bride. But there's also another damaging way that husbands sin against their wives. And this is a third category of harshness, and that's apathy. Apathy. When your harshness is a lack of action or a lack of love or a lack of vision for your wife and kids, that apathy or complacency isn't a neutral dynamic. The famous writer and Holocaust survivor Eli Wiesel once said, the opposite of love isn't hate, it is indifference. So do you find yourself apathetic or indifferent or complacent or passive specifically about your wife's spiritual health? That's, that's a harsh way to be towards your wife. Ephesians 5 says, love your wife as your own bodies. It also says no one ever hated his own flesh. And I know that we could say that we're hard on our bodies sometimes, but when you hear that no one ever hated his own flesh, think about how at the end of a long day you would might sink into a comfy chair and nourish your flesh. Christ nourishes his body and the man who loves his wife loves his own body because you guys are one flesh. Love your wife. Prefer her health and her flourishing over your own comfort. And love with the biblical understanding of love. Christ's love for us doesn't make him our assistant or our sidekick or our mascot. Love means action. Love means leading. Love means serving for the sake of flourishing and beautification. Love means dying. Love means taking responsibility for your wife's spiritual well-being. And the spiritual well-being of your wife, her spiritual needs are defined by God in his word. Husbands, what you do and what you don't do has an enormous impact on your wife. What you do and what you don't do has an enormous impact on your kids for good or ill. I say this part with tons of sympathy and compassion and conviction uh, for my own heart and life and leadership. We don't have a choice in the matter. This is how God designed things to be. He designed us to have this disproportionate impact on the relationships around us like gravity. And it's best not to get into a fight with gravity. 
It's best to surrender to the one who made gravity and who made things this way, to surrender to Jesus Christ and repent of passive sins and repent of active sins and ask for forgiveness and receive assurance that in Christ you are forgiven. You're forgiven. And then get back up and keep going because your wife and kids need you to. There are also men in this room who, if they're honest, simply don't like how God made things. They feel stupid or inadequate or unsure or fearful about what to do. They don't know what to do. And frankly, they, they, they don't want to um, believe this about reality. They don't see why they need to bear this kind of burden. They don't want everything they do to count and they wish what they did didn't impact all the relationships around them. They'd be more comfortable coasting and letting somebody else handle everything. And I get that. I get that. None of you asked for God to arrange things this way. But again, that attitude is like playing a game of chicken with gravity. And gravity's going to win. The truth is, surrendering to God's design for the universe is better than resisting it. We, we love men in this church. Men are welcome in this place. And I long to see men who are embracing the design and call of God on their lives, to live out their lives, embracing sacrificial responsibility for the good of all the people around them, starting inside their homes. This brings me to my uh, third and final point, and that is uh, fathers demonstrate your love for Christ in how you father your children. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest you discourage them. The context here is in relation to the command that children obey, and that makes it most likely that this context is related to how fathers discipline their children. And the best paraphrase that you can come up with for this word provoke is to cause someone to react in a way that suggests the acceptance of a challenge. So it's, it's discipline, disciplining your kids in a way that makes them want to bow up on you and, and respond to a challenge. This command suggests, one, that there is a way to discipline that embitters that embitters, that fosters resentment and causes disheartening, dispiriting, and discouraging of our children. And two, there's a way to discipline that doesn't have these negative effects. But we do have to keep in mind that Paul just commanded kids to obey their parents. So this can't mean for us as parents to stop requiring obedience. We should require obedience from our kids and discipline them when they disobey and do that in such a way that they don't receive it as a challenge to them. Innumerable movies have been made and books have been written about the generational impact of the heavy-handed torment of sinful fathering. And I have a friend who's a pastor, and about this verse, he likes to say that the line that divides appropriate discipline and appropriate criticism from dispiriting and disheartening and provoking begins with your heart before your heavenly Father first. And I agree. I agree with that. In Ephesians 6, 4, it says, we can again 
we, we get, again, a more detailed instruction regarding children. And there Paul says, bring up your children. And he's meaning literally nourish them. Nourish your children in the instruction and the admonition of the Lord. This means using everything that we can and focusing in all the ways that we can love and nurture and develop our children so that they can live as God intends them to live. Legan Duncan says it this way. He says, so that they will not lose heart. In other words, punishment, correction, though it must be done, must be done and balanced with the positive discipline of the Lord. Time spent with children in teaching them and encouraging them and instructing them both verbally and by example in the way, the way of the Lord, pointing them positively to Christ, telling them that they have done well and not only telling them when they have not done well, telling them that they have pleased you and pleased the Lord and not only that they have displeased the Lord. Paul is calling fathers to rear children in such a way that they will not feel only the rebellion rebuke of God, but they will also feel and experience his approval, his approval. So fathers in the room, do your kids know that you enjoy them? Do your kids know that there's nothing that they could do to make you love them more? Do they know that there's nothing they could do to make you love them less? Love doesn't work that way. Do they know that you delight in them? And that doesn't mean that you treat them like they're God either. Remember, this is a lordship context. This is about worship and submission to Christ. So if you worship your kids, that's not loving them. It's loving to love God with all of your heart, devote yourself to God, and let love fuel, let that love fuel your kind of parenting love. So you don't want to treat them like they're God, but if you don't enjoy them, then you're saying something false about the true God. If you find yourself constantly angry with your sons or constantly annoyed with your daughters, you're telling a lie about how God is disposed toward you. God has every right to be irritated and frustrated with us, but he's not. But he's not. And if you're constantly provoking your children, then you're telling lies about God the Father. If you demean them or dominate over your children, you're, you're imaging or you are, you're projecting outward a lie about the heart of the Father. So instead, instead, do what God does. Do what God does. Give your face to your kids. Dads in the room, turn your face to your children. Put the phone down. Turn the TV off and beam, beam in their direction. Pay attention. Look at what's happening. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. The Lord lifts up his countenance upon you and gives you peace. Let your face shine. Let your face shine at your kids so they know what the face of God looks like.
He's patient with us. We don't, we don't feel the weight of that sometimes, that unimaginable patience, because we tend to believe that we don't need that kind of patience because we think we're pretty awesome. But God's long-suffering and kind and gentle with us. And then we, we turn around and we act like the unforgiving servant when we parent our kids. But in parenting your children, remember, you were forgiven much, so much. You were forgiven so much. God looked at our disobedience and then he sent his son to pay the penalty so that he could forgive us and save us from our own sin and from his wrath that was righteous and warranted. So parents in the room, if you, if you find yourself revved up at your kids a lot, that's a blinking light on the dashboard. It's a blinking light on the dashboard to ask questions and take an opportunity to ask yourself, in what way have I contributed to this behavior or this attitude? In what way do I need to make this right with my kids? In what way is this a result of my own complacency or comfort seeking or a result of my own harsh attitude and disposition? A lot of things that our kids do are directly connected to the consequences of the parents' sin. A lack of diligence or a lack of consistency and a lack of the kind of love that we want to show to our children. This is why devotion to Christ is the only way these kinds of verses can be applied and obeyed. You don't have, you don't have what it takes. You don't have what it takes. Husbands, the only way to love your wives and lead them is to do it in a way that honors your submission to Christ first. And fathers, discipline your children in a way that honors your own submission to Christ first and foremost. It's the only, it's only through deep and proactive surrendering of all of yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that you'll have both the understanding and the kind of broken heart that you need to do this. Do you find yourself not loving your wife and being harsh with her? Ask yourself, could it be because you want to be God instead of submitting to Christ? Are you constantly angry with your kids? Could it be that maybe you're mad that they're not treating you like God? Are you constantly checking out or giving up or giving in and letting your house just run all over you? Can you ask, is this because my comfort or my calm or maybe even my laziness is in charge instead of Jesus being in charge? One last exhortation to the men in the room. And I'm, I'm begging, I'm begging you guys to help teach each other how to be men in this day and age. First, if you find yourself failing in one of these areas, you don't have to wallow in shame. You don't have to be paralyzed with guilt or fear. You can be willing to step forward and ask for help. This is a mystery for all of us in the room. It's funny, um, how we'll identify things that we know that we're weak in, but then we don't, we don't go ask anybody for help and try, and try to apply advice. Why don't we look at another man who looks like he knows more about parenting or he knows more about being a husband than I do and then go ask him, hey, can you talk to me? 
Can you give me some help here? Can I tell you about my relationship with my wife? And you can tell me about places that you think I could grow or repent or change. Do you see a wife that's godly and her face is bright and courageous and fearless? And you want to know how maybe you could help contribute to your own wife's flourishing? Go and ask that man for help. When Paul says things in the scriptures like imitate me as I imitate Christ, that means we should all be utilizing the power of imitation. We should all be utilizing that dynamic, not just trying to get like stoned or thrown in prison or something. It means look at other people who are following Jesus the way you long to and imitate them and ask for help. We should, be see, we should see someone loving Jesus the way we want to and then try to imitate that. So godly men in the room, if you get asked for help after this sermon, man, please provide it. Please make space for it. And other brothers in the room, if you see something, say something. Say something. Provide wisdom and help as a, as a, as a culture. What would it look like if the culture among our men was one that didn't let us just pay attention to verses like this once or twice a year, but actually didn't let us get away with ignoring them at all? What would it look like if the culture of husbands in our church was attentive and zealous for the spiritual adornment of our wives? What would it look like if the culture of fathering here was men who gave their blessing and gave their time and turned their faces to the work of nourishing children reared up in attentive homes filled with grace and grace-empowered, loving discipline of their children? Man, that's what I dream about. That's what I'm praying for, and it's what I'm fighting for. Would you, all, would you all bow your heads with me and pray? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would free any man in this room that feels shame or guilt or like debilitating challenge right now. I pray that you would cut off things that we get tangled up in and try to slow us down or hold us down. I pray against the power of um, accusation from the enemy or even accusation from our own flesh. Spirit of God, would you um, encourage the men in this room? Would you bolster them? Would you increase their faith? Would you increase their zeal and devotion to follow and love and honor and live underneath submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And I ask for real, practical, rubber-meets-the-road kind of outworking of this reality. I pray for relationships that have broken fellowship, whether with our children or with our wives. I pray that men would be convicted to restore that fellowship and confess sin, ask for forgiveness, and repent. I pray that you would restore and strengthen relationships in this church through courageous men who live to die for the sake of others, for the sake of their wives and kids, for the sake of um, even other people in their community. 
Would you give us uh, the, the grace to do that? Would you encourage us this morning? Would you make the weak strong this morning? Would you uh, make sturdy, kind of wobbly knees? And, and men, women, children in this place, man, would we all like orient our relationships under, happily under the ultimate sovereign authority of Jesus. That's where true freedom lies. So I pray for the grace to embrace that this morning in a deeper way by the power of the Holy Spirit. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.